0: the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to uh, study the word and to focus, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're so very grateful that we have you to come to in times of need and that you uh, desire for us to bring our uh, petitions and our intercessions before you. And even though in your omniscience you're fully aware of all of these requests, Nevertheless, you desire us to take the time to come before you and present them to you. Father, we, as we gather together this evening in prayer meeting as we thought through many of the people in this congregation who are facing various uh, types of illness. We also recognize your healing hand on others. And Father, one we continue to pray for is George Meisinger and also direction for Chafer Seminary. Father, we're thankful that we can be here tonight as a as a visible testimony to the angels as well as to men of the truth of your uh, of the gospel and truth of the scriptures, Father, we pray that we might always keep that a priority, and we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study this evening in Christ's name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles this evening to Acts chapter twenty. Acts chapter twenty. This is really an interesting passage that we're in. This is Paul's final words to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. And many people go to this passage for different reasons and different things, so it's an important passage to examine and to evaluate. But there's some, I think a lot of this section, as I pointed out last time, Is important for understanding some of the dynamics of the pastoral ministry. Even though the Apostle Paul is functioning as an apostle, not a pastor, in many of the ways in which the the apostle function were were the same. Remember in Ephesians, um, Ephesians chapter four, verses ten and eleven, we're told that God gave, and then there's a list of four distinct gifts that are given for the purpose of the edification of the church. Now, the first two were temporary gifts that were characteristic of the early church, apostles and prophets. But the second two are evangelists and pastors, pastor teachers. And so those gifts all had the same purpose to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And so we get a glimpse of how the pastoral ministry functions here, both in terms of Paul's own example which he refers to as he gives these parting words to the elders uh, at uh, that he meets with in, in Miletus but also because of the descriptive words that are used the verbs that are used throughout this section describing what he is doing as as a pastor we as i pointed out last time we live in a in an ecclesiastical environment today uh, that's been a- around for centuries because of a lot of confusion over the nature and purpose of the church that entered in very, very early. And the the function of the pulpit ministry, the function of the pastoral ministry, has certainly undergone a lot of changes. Uh, there was a recovery of the Word of God, the importance of the Word of God, during the Protestant Reformation, and for much of the following um, 400 years... After the Protestant Reformation, we still saw an emphasis on the teaching ministry of the Word, at least in a number of uh, Protestant denominations. Sadly, since World War II, that has been in decline. And there has been quite a a shift in the way people think about the uh, purpose of uh, the pastor and the purpose of a sermon or Bible class. In fact, every now and then, I don't know if you've ever run into this, I've seen it for probably the last 30 years I've been in pastoral ministry is people talk about how much they love Bible study and then they come and they sit in a Bible class at, a, at a, any kind of a teaching church and I don't know what their concept of a Bible study is, but that's not it. And they just, you know, they can't run out the door fast enough. I don't know what they expect and what their perception is of Bible study, but it isn't Bible study it's uh, something else. So what we but the emphasis we see in scripture is on the content of the word of God as the source of our strength and the source of our growth and this is a great passage to illustrate this. Now this occurs toward the end of Paul's am I missing something? Yeah, we're missing. Is anything showing? Turned these on earlier. No. Do, w- Bruce, we have a problem. Let's see. Put that on computer two. So you have power. Yeah. But it's not... Um, I mean, the computer's acting like it's plugged in. Plug it in again. Oh, I don't know what it is. It's just other the connector keeps slipping loose. There we go. Okay. Great job, Bruce. Cut that thing. Yeah, good job, Bruce. <laughs> okay, here's, here's our map. We're towards the end of the... Now, that's weird. I'm going to unplug this, well, I will. reacquire, no, it was on my computer, it was the way it was projecting it, I didn't have it, um, it was up on the screen, but it wasn't on my laptop, there we go, okay, here's a map, yeah, that looks good. we have, uh, thank you, so so you're, you're, it's good. all good, okay, I don't care about you, I care about you. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. Okay, he's in Miletus. Skipped stopping off at Ephesus because their offloading of cargo and onloading of car- cargo in Miletus was going to take time, and that would have been a more efficient place to stop and have a meeting. They, he knew they would be there three or four days, whereas if they had stopped in Ephesus along the way, that just would have cost a couple of days, and he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem to observe Pentecost. Now, when he arrives in Miletus, as I pointed out last time, he sends off to Ephesus for the elders of the church to come and uh, meet with him in Miletus. Now, the term elder is the Greek word presbyteros, which usually refers to somebody who is older, but it also referred to certain recognized leaders in the synagogue, in the Jewish community, also in the civic community. So it didn't always indicate age, although generally it was viewed as those who were more mature and those who were therefore qualified uh, to be leaders. So he sent for the elders of the church to gather, and when he came, he has a uh, very close, heart-to-heart talk with them where he emphasizes their responsibility and warns them of some things that are going to come. Now, as we look at um, his warning, he says, You know, from the, he starts off referring to his own ministry as an example of their, how their ministry should be conducted. And he says, um, You know, from the first day that I came uh, to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. And he comes back to this. Later on, as he talks to them, referencing his own, uh, the, the, the qualities and characteristics of his own personal ministry, that he was not there to, uh, to, to acquire gain for himself. He was not there to try to, uh, uh, become wealthy. In fact, in, First 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he makes a point to the Corinthians that even though, uh, he had every right to have been, uh, financially supported, uh, from the ministry he chose to not do that. He said Peter uh, and the other uh, apostles would travel. They would take their wives with them. They would be financially supported by the congregations, and that was fine. But that this was an area where the he chose not to do that so that he would not be uh, uh, criticized for... Uh, doing the ministry for financial gain. And that was Paul's personal decision and how he would conduct his ministry in Corinth, and he did the same thing in Ephesus. So he's emphasizing the quality of that, that he was serving the Lord with all humility. So that the word serving there is the word uh, I have up on the screen, which means to serve as a slave. And this emphasizes the fact that he recognizes that he is under bondage, to the Lord Jesus Christ to serve him as an apostle, and that this was conducted with many uh, tears and trials uh, which happened to him as a result of the plotting of the Jews. And last time I went through a number of the different passages that described uh, the, the, the re- reaction from the Jewish community in different places, as he, like in Iconium and in uh, Philippi and in Thessalonica, and how uh, they stirred up the, the crowds against him. And also, in I read through passages in 2 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 12, dealing with all of the different manner of suffering that he went through. And so there was much that Paul encountered in opposition, and many people would have just given up or quit, but he refused to do so. And he... Um, in verse 20 we go on to read how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. So this describes something else about his uh, about his ministry. He kept back nothing. This is the word hopestello in, in the Greek simply referring to his past, just generally characterizing his past behavior and it should be translated, I did not shrink back or I did not hold back. He wasn't timid. He wasn't cowed by the opposition so that he would uh, refrain from uh, conducting his ministry as the Lord had commissioned him. So he kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you. Now, this is another word that we see as in our study, two words here that come up in this passage that talk about the pastoral ministry. He says he proclaimed it to them, and he taught them publicly and from house to house. Uh, The idea of teaching uh, is brought out in the, uh, our proclamation is the word anangelo. Angelos, even though it's got a double G in there in Greek, a double G is pronounced like an NG. That's why we have angel spelled uh, A-N-G-E-L. We have ongel- anangelo. This is angolo, which is the verb to proclaim with a uh, prefix, a prepositional prefix to it, which intensifies it, which means to report, to announce something, or to recount something. So it is not a dialogue. You know, there's some people who think, well, pastors ought to have something of a dialogue with the congregation. There's always those kinds of trends. And there may be a place for that in an informal setting, but what Paul is emphasizing here is a monologue that he came and he publicly announced the gospel. Usually, often this word is related to the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel. And then he says, and he taught them, and this is the word that's on the right on the screen, this is the word uh, didasco, and didasco emphasizes instruction. It emphasizes a uh, training it emphasizes uh, explanation of the scripture so that people understand what it means and how to apply it uh, in their lives. And so he does this in, in two environments. One is public and the other is house to house. So it's not that he is making house calls in the sense of home visitations, which is uh, common in some denominations, but... They could only meet in in a, in a lot of these situations like in ephesus they they met perhaps they had a place where they could meet as a corporate body once a week and but that was the only time they could all meet together and then they would meet in different people's homes uh, during the week, and he would conduct different Bible studies uh, during the week in people's in people's homes with smaller groups. So he taught both publicly, and this would also imply places where anyone could come and listen to his, uh, to his instruction. So he taught publicly, and he, and he taught from house to house. Then we come to uh, another verse in verse 21 that begins with a, uh, a participle, and this is the verb dia, martyre, dia martyromai. And it's from the root martireo, which means to testify or to witness in a legal trial, something like that. It has the basic idea of charging people with a responsibility or a task or a way of behavior to adjure them, to bear witness to them, or to legally testify against them. Now, this verb is connected back, uh, this participle rather, explains a more about how and what he was teaching as he went publicly and from house to house. He is uh, giving his own testimony and explaining how God's grace became apparent in his life, and he's doing this to the Jews and also to the Greeks. The emphasis here is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So there was a priority in his ministry in directing it uh, towards the Jews, and then he explains what that concept is, what he's teaching. It's primarily repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word repentance is a word that gets a lot of misuse, not only in English, but also in, in many other languages. Uh, it's often translated with the idea of remorse, the idea of sorrow or sadness. And that may or may not be part of, of repentance. But the emphasis in the word is a changing of the mind. It's made up of a preposition meta plus the noun noia, which comes from the uh, root nous, which is the word for the mind in Greek. So it has to do with the changing of the mind, to change one's mind or to think differently about things. Uh, and so the emphasis is not on emotion. It's not... Um, metamelami, which is another Greek word that's used in some passages that emphasizes sorrow, this emphasizes thought. It emphasizes a changing of their mind toward God as they come to understand who God is and they understand the righteousness of God. So there's a change in their thinking toward God and as a result, they have faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. Faith is non-meritorious. There is nothing about faith that has merit. Now, in Calvinistic schemes, faith has merit. Faith is a, is a gift of God. And so in, in many forms of Calvinism, they will say that God gives the elect saving faith. And, uh, and the assumption there is that there is a distinction between the kind of faith that we exercise every day and the kind of faith that saves. And so this way they get a, uh, they make faith causative, the kind of faith is causative for salvation. But faith is, the best argument against that, I believe, is from um, Ephesians two 8, 9, we're saved through faith, not because of faith. The emphasis isn't on the kind of faith that we have, but the o- object of faith, it's through faith and that faith is directed towards Jesus Christ and toward his work on the cross. So that Jesus Christ is the one that has merit. It's not us. It's not because God has given us faith. This is also a problem when we discuss uh, concepts like election with Calvinists is that their view of election, uh, their, their understanding of our view of election is that God chooses us because of our faith because they see faith as meritorious. So they can't help but translate that into their way of thinking in terms of uh, the fact that if we believe that God takes into account um, his foreknowledge in determining uh, his uh, election, then they see that as making faith causative for salvation and uh, because that's how they view faith. So when faith is seen as non-meritorious, then we're free to understand how god's omniscience and foreknowledge works together with his choice of who is saved he He elects those who who will believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior so in acts twenty and twenty one we see uh, three key words: proclaimed, taught, and testifying. These are three key words describing the instructional methodology of an apostle and a pastor. And the content is related to the gospel, changing their mind toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 22, Paul introduces a new concept, and he says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. So he begins to talk about his destiny and his future plans. He says, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, uh, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Now we'll get to 23 in a minute. He says he goes bound. This is the Greek word peruomai that has the idea of proceeding or traveling so we could even translate this see now i travel he's talking about the direction of his of his future travels and he says that he is bound in the spirit and this is the verb deo deo is used here it's a perfect passive participle so that means it's it's modifying as a as a participle it's modifying the verb to go so it's explaining something about how He is going or or, or the manner in which he's going or the means by which he's going, something like that. It's describing some characteristic of of why he is traveling. And as a perfect tense, it's completed action. So he's talking about something that he's already been bound by the spirit. This is a past action that he's talking about the current results, his traveling to Jerusalem. He's bound in the spirit. Now, in the New King James, it translates it with a lowercase s. Maybe if some of you have a New American Standard, does anybody have a translation that translates that with an uppercase s? What do you have? New American, New American Standard. Good. It should be an uppercase s. It's, it's simply, it doesn't have the uh, 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 preposition in with it, but the just the dative case itself can indicate instrumentality And so he's talking about the fact that he has already been bound by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So we look at this in comparison with the verse we looked at last time uh, or in the last chapter, Acts 19.21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, that is by means of the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem. Now what these two verses tell us is is Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem is done uh, by by means of the Holy Spirit under the leadership of God the Holy Spirit. Now I'm emphasizing this because we're building our, for, we're building forward into the next couple of chapters when uh, some of these prophecies get a little more uh, direct towards the Apostle Paul, and because of one particular prophecy that comes up in the next chapter, um, which sounds like the Holy Spirit is telling him not to go, we have to be able to correlate these passages. Here we have several passages that are very clear that the Apostle Paul is being directed and led by God the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Now, there are some who've taught that Paul was in carnality and Paul was out of fellowship when he went to Jerusalem. But you can't, uh, you can't You can't validate that in light of the clear statements we have in Acts 19.21 and Acts 20.22. So we're going to have to uh, deal with that in a little more detail, but I'm just laying this out for you uh, as we build towards that uh, ultimate decision. Was Paul right or wrong in his decision to go to Jerusalem? And I believe on the basis of these passages that he's right, but the Holy Spirit is warning him that he's going to face opposition, he's going to be imprisoned, he's going to face a a lot of adversity uh, and and persecution, but that doesn't stop Paul. Just because we're, we're going to face opposition and things are going to get difficult and things are going to be hard doesn't mean that we should give up or that we're not doing God's will. Doing God's will and doing the right thing many times isn't easy. In fact, I've heard some people say that that if you have two or three different choices, the the choice that's probably the most difficult for you is probably the right choice. Uh, Because many times what we want to do is take the easy route and not do the, the more difficult route, which is often the right thing. So Paul has purposed or determined by means of the Spirit. That means he's thought this through under the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit and uh, under particularly the guidance, I believe the apostles had more direct guidance uh, apart from the Scripture than we do. Our guidance is through the Scripture. Their guidance was direct because they did not have uh, completed canon of Scripture yet, for one thing, and they were being directly led by the Spirit in a way that was unique to the apostles. So he's, he recognizes that uh, certain uh, negative things are going to happen to him. This is what is brought out in verse 23. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. So every time he's going to a different location, we're going to see there's somebody, uh, some if there's somebody with the gift of prophecy in the congregation. And remember, the gift of prophecy was still valid at that time, only during the apostolic period. And that... Uh, they were warning Paul uh, through the Holy Spirit of what he was going to face when he went to Jerusalem. It was not going to be easy. And, he, and so Paul's response is then given in verse 24. He says, None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. He's got the right priority. He says, um, Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy, and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so what we see here is a mentality that we need to adopt. We need to understand that our life is not our own. Our life is Christ. As as Paul says in Galatians 2.21, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live, I live by the faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. And so our life is to serve him. And so he recognizes that whatever negative things happen in our life, no matter what opposition we may face because of our stand for the truth and our stand for the gospel, that that is well worth it because we are serving the Lord Jesus in what we are doing. And so our focus needs to be on the end game, and we need to think in terms of uh, the principle that's set up in, also articulated in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, in terms of our occupation with Christ. In Ephesians 12, 2, we read that we are to be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and completer of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross so we need to have our focus on that end game of joy in terms of uh, our eternal destiny serving the Lord and our future inheritance that we will receive at the judgment seat of Christ fixing our hope on that enables us to face and surmount whatever challenges whatever difficulties we face uh, in this life so the basically if we're going to imitate this attitude the first thing we have to do is we have to make our spiritual life our priority. It's not something that's just optional. Learning the scriptures, assimilating the scriptures, learning to think like the Bible says isn't just something that's what we do. You know, some people get that idea, especially some, uh, some children, some young people. Well, that's, that's what, just what those Christians do, but I'm going to find a meaning in life somewhere else. Our meaning in life comes from the Lord, and we have to decide, and many, it's sad, but many Christians spend most of their life trying to figure out whether they're really going to serve the Lord or not, and they just go back and forth, and they waffle uh, throughout their their spiritual life. The most important decision we can make is, is our life going to count for eternity, or are we going to live out our life simply to serve our own good pleasure and our own desires? If we're going to make the spiritual life our priority, then we have to get into the Word of God, and the Word of God has to get into us. And that only happens when we make it a priority to be in Bible class, uh, to listen during the week. Uh, We can't all be here every night. I understand that. But we have all kinds of tremendous media today where we can uh, get on the Internet, we can put it on our smartphones, our iPads, our our iPods and everything else and listen to the Word again and again and again and um, and this should, we should never be discouraged. Sometimes we can't listen for very long, maybe only 15 or 20 minutes a day, but we have to spend that time every single day because that's more important than anything else. When our life is over and our lives get shorter every year, it seems, uh, when our life is over, The only thing that we carry into eternity is what we've assimilated from the Word of God uh, during our time here on earth. So we have to get the Word of God into our lives, and that involves uh, the fact that we have to focus on how we live and how we think. We have to stop, think, focus, and train ourselves, retrain ourselves over and over again, because our default position is always to go towards the sin nature. And to always go towards self-absorption and a self-indulgence and self-justification, and to let arrogance rule in our in our souls. So we need to constantly discipline our thinking to focus on the realities of life, and not just go along, uh, to get along, and go with the flow. So Paul demonstrates that attitude for us that we need to put our ministry that God has given us, and every one of us, it doesn't matter who you are as a believer, you've been given a ministry, you've been given a spiritual gift, at least one, and that is the ministry that God has given you. And a lot of Christians spend their whole life wondering what that may be rather than just getting out and serving in whatever capacity is available and let God uh, direct you as we get out and we do different things in the, in, in the ministry involved with, with, uh, with the church and with others in the body of Christ. Then it becomes apparent over time what our strength is and how we play a part in ministering to one another in the body of Christ. Now, having said that, Paul goes on to say some more things about his own ministry. He says, and indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone, preaching the kingdom of God. Again, we see this emphasis on the kingdom of God. He says, I know that you all will see my face no more. So he's wrapping things up. He knows that he won't see them again. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. And and he said this kind of statement before, and what he means is that he has been faithful in proclaiming the word so that the issue is clear and he is, is innocent in the sense that he has made things clear. And if somebody doesn't uh, respond, if they don't have eternal life, it's not because he has failed in his mission. And he explains that uh, clearly in the next verse. It begins with a four, which indicates an explanation. Uh, The reason he can say he's innocent of the blood of all men is because he has not uh, shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Now, I want you to look at these three words that are used here. He's preaching the kingdom of God. He's testifying to you. This is a different word. This is just martyreo here. It was dia martyreo, I believe, earlier. uh, For I've not shunned to declare to you, the whole counsel of God. These are different ways to talk about the communication ministry of an apostle and a pastor. They, it is a communication ministry to teach the word. So I've summarized, uh, I think it's eight, maybe nine words that are used here in terms of the, the communication ministry of, a, of a, an apostle or a pastor teacher. First of all, we have the word teach used 19 times in Acts. This is the word "didasko," meaning to teach, to instruct, to explain uh, to uh, people what the word of God means and how, and, and do it in a clear enough way to where they can see, under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, how it can apply in their lives. The second word that he uses is encourage. The Greek word is parakaleo, which has the idea of encouraging people, strengthening them, urging them to a particular course of action. It could be translated exhorting them or challenging them in a particular course of action. A third word is proclaim. Proclaim is, translates the word catangelo, which means to announce or declare something. It's similar to the word we'll see in a minute, uh, 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 keruso, just where the, something is announced. Uh, it's not uh, necessarily gone into in detail or explained. There's no question and answer. There's no debate. It's just the announcement or explanation of a uh, of, of a declaration. Uh, another word that's similar, a different prefix, anangaleo, which means to report, uh, to announce something, or to recount something. So this is what a pastor does. He instructs. Uh, His instruction is also designed to challenge and to encourage people and to go forward in their spiritual life, to proclaim the truth of God's word, to proclaim the gospel, and to announce or report on what God has done in Jesus Christ in in, uh, his gracious provision of salvation. A fifth word that's used is the word uh, proclaim or preach, which often translates not keruso, which is one we might expect, but evangelizo, which is to evangelize, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Uh, Often when you see the word preach in Acts, it's not caruso, which emphasizes just the proclamation aspect, but it is the deliverance of good news to people. Uh, A sixth word that's used is strengthen people. Uh, episterizo, which means to strengthen, to support them. And this is done through the word of God that gives people the, the stamina, the the perseverance, the endurance to, to hang in there when they're going through difficult times. A seventh word is the word preach, keruso, uh, which has the idea to just to proclaim or to preach. Now, preaching in the Bible has to do with Uh, not so much with an oral style. That's what we hear a lot today, that preaching is different from teaching. Preaching is a certain uh, rhetorical style, a certain uh, uh, homily, uh, homiletical approach, a structure where you have three or four points, tell a couple of stories, uh, a couple of jokes, and then have a conclusion. And often you see this in some and a lot of denominations where it builds in terms of its intensity and its emotional drive to some sort of emotional challenge uh, at the end. But that's not what the Bible means by preaching. What the Bible means by preaching is to simply proclaim the truth or or, uh, make a a proclamation, an announcement. And often it is related to the gospel message uh, as opposed to teaching, which would be the instruction and uh, explanation of what a passage of scripture means so they're not contradictory it's not preaching or teaching often they would uh, would go together an eighth word that's used in in this passage in acts is the word warning uh from the root news which refers to the mind and it means to challenge the mind admonish the thinking to warn to advise people So these are eight different words that are used to describe what a pastor is supposed to do. He's supposed to warn people. He's supposed to instruct them, challenge them, all of this through his teaching of of the word of God. Now here's, uh, I've got a couple of passages here to give you an indication of how these words are used. This is the word keruso here. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, but we preach... That is, we proclaim Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. In 2 Timothy 4.2, this verse was the motto for Dallas Seminary. Preach the word or proclaim the word. Be ready in season and out of season. This is Paul's instruction to Timothy as a pastor. By the time Paul wrote 1 Timothy, Timothy had become the pastor of the church in uh, Ephesus So he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. In other words, whether you're ready or not, any time you are ready to give the gospel, no matter what the circumstances may be. Uh, And then he goes on to say, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering or patience and teaching. So this is the role of the pastor-teacher. Uh, the role of the pastor-teacher is not the administrator. He's not the CEO of the congregation. He is the, the, the spiritual leader and teacher and trainer for the congregation. Now, those three verses I just looked at in Acts 20, 20 the last verse, Acts 20, 27, Paul says, "'For I have not shunned to declare to you or, or hesitated to declare to you the whole counsel of God.'" Now, uh, the word declares, the word anangelo, which means to announce or proclaim again, but the word counsel is the word boule, which many times has the idea of will. Uh, so it could, in some translations, it may be uh, translated the whole will of God. Uh, it also has the idea of the counsel of God in the sense that this is a way of describing the entirety of Scripture, that the role of the pastor is, is to teach the whole counsel of God. Now, I have been uh, surprised as I've read this verse and looked at different people, over uh, pastors over the years. There was a trend among dispensationalists. I knew of one pastor, good teacher, great teacher up in the Dallas area uh, years ago. He's since gone to be with the Lord. He never taught anything but the epistles of Paul. This was a a trend of some dispensationalists coming out of the 19th century that because the epistles of Paul focused on the spiritual life of the church age, that's the most important, and I'm not doubting that principle, but they never taught the Old Testament. They never taught the Gospels, never taught Acts. He spent almost 50 years as a pastor, never never got out of the epistles, and this has been true of a lot of dispensationalists, but we're to teach the whole counsel of God, not just salvation. Not just the spiritual life, not just, uh, uh, you know, a different way of teaching the gospel every Sunday... But the whole counsel of God, we're supposed to address every issue in life that the Word of God addresses, which is every realm of our thinking. So sometimes, and you've heard me teach on this, sometimes you touch on economics, sometimes you touch on politics, sometimes you touch on law, sometimes you touch on, on, on ethics, sometimes you touch on uh, more spirit, things that are considered more spiritual, such as uh, prayer, uh, salvation, different things of that nature. But we're to teach everything that the Word of God touches on so that we can learn to think about everything in life the way uh, that God has revealed to us, so that we can think about His creation the way He designed it. So, Paul emphasizes that he has not hesitated to declare the whole counsel of God, he hasn't held back on anything. And then in verse 28, he comes to a warning. He gives a warning after having said all these things. He says, therefore, uh, since I've taught the whole counsel of God, I want you to now be warned. And he warns them uh, about what they are doing. Now he says, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, before we get into the contents of this verse, I want to talk a little bit about church leadership and the terms that are used for church leadership. Earlier, I pointed out the word presbyteros, referring to these men that were meeting with him, that they were, that that's a term for elders. And there are some denominations, Presbyterian for the most part, but many Bible churches have adopted a Presbyterian form of government where they have two boards. Uh, One board is referred to as the elder board or the session in Presbyterian churches, and uh, another board would be the board of deacons. The board of deacons would relate to more mundane administrative tasks in the congregation, whereas the elders would be more concerned about uh, spiritual leadership in the congregation. And in some of the ways in which these elder governments are set up, it's as if they're all equal. I know at John MacArthur's church, at Grace Community Church, they have a, I don't know what it is now, but at one time they had 65 or 70 elders, and they wouldn't make a decision unless it was unanimous. Uh, that's, that's very difficult. I know of another church uh, where it had a similar setup. And it led to a tremendous split in that church. It happened about seven or eight years ago and caused tremendous uh, spiritual harm to people. Uh, How this functions is not described in Scripture. That there are two categories of leaders, one that focuses on the spiritual, one that focuses on administration, is clear. But God doesn't tell us how exactly that's supposed to work. And it functions differently in different cultures. How a 19th century church organized itself is different from a 20th century church or an 11th century church. Different things have come in, different cultures uh, have brought in different things, and and it depends on the culture as to how it's expressed. One of the most uh, illuminating practical assignments I was given uh, in seminary, I took one of our... uh, Seminary classes when I was on, I think it was Christology, Pneumatology, and Ecclesiology. And um, uh, Tommy Ice and I were in the class together, and we sat up on the front row with our tape recorders, taping everything. But the professor gave us an assignment. He wanted us to visit two churches from each different church polity. By polity, I mean different forms of government. So you have the Episcopal form of government, like you have in an Episcopal, Methodist, or Roman Catholic Church, uh, you have a uh, Presbyterian form of government, which you would have in a Presbyterian Church, some Bible churches, and then you have uh, Baptist forms of government, which would be similar to what we have, where you have a pastor or pastors, and they're equivalent to elders, and then you have a board of deacons and He wanted us to go and visit each of these churches and evaluate them in terms of how they actually functioned and uh, as many of you know, I came out of a uh, grew up in a church where the pastor Uh, was often accused of being a dictator. But I have seen some teaching elders at elder churches that theoretically in terms of their constitution, the elders were all equal who were even more authoritative. I've seen in some other uh, independent Baptist churches uh, true tyrants uh, pastors who did everything, uh, including when the uh, when the deacons would take up the offering, the, it would be taken back and put on his desk, and then they would go out and the door would be locked, and he counted all the money and put it in the bank the next day, and that might be good in some circumstances. It might if he's got integrity, and uh, in some of these circumstances, I've seen he didn't really trust too many people with the money. Uh, but it, it varies from culture to culture. And I would see the bottom line was you it didn't matter whether you called them elders or pastors or deacons or what the nomenclature was. Generally, you had uh, one or two or three, depending on how large the pastoral staff was, who focused more on the teaching and instruction, spiritual instruction of the congregation. And then you had another group that might be called trustees, they might be called deacons, they're in different nomenclature. And they basically made sure that the bills were paid and that the uh, church was clean and that the doors were opened and uh, the doors were locked at, a, at the right time, and all of those kinds of things, the basic running of the business of the church. Now, the polity that we have in this church, as I pointed out, is somewhat similar to Baptist churches. We believe in a, in a local church, an independent congregation, that does not uh, submit to any outside authority. So there's no uh, uh, higher presbytery to answer to. There's no... Um, uh, there's no uh, Episcopal bishop or uh, archbishop to answer to. Everything is run and operated by a local independent congregation. And I believe that these words that we find in Scripture describe different aspects of the role of what we refer to as the pastor. This is what we see in this verse. In uh, this verse, you have two words, overseers who shepherd the church of God. Now, in some translations, the word overseer is translated as bishop, and that's uh, related to, that's to the word episkopos. Uh, the the uh, elders here are overseers. Remember, he called the elders of the uh, church at Ephesus to Miletus, and now he says to them that uh, the Holy Spirit made them overseers. So, an elder is an overseer. We'll see that there, these terms are used interchangeably in other pass, uh, passages. So the word the the overseer is that's translated overseer, bishop, or guardian. But that word emphasizes the leadership and the oversight role of the pastor. This whoever this individual is, the term bishop or episkopos emphasizes his responsibility of oversight over the congregation the second word is a verb here it's not the noun pastor it is the verb poimino, which means to feed or to shepherd uh, and it emphasizes the primary function of the elder or the or the uh, 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 bishop and that is to feed the sheep spiritually so we have these three words that are used. Episkopos emphasizes the leadership oversight role. Presbyteros emphasizes the maturity aspect of the pastor teacher, that he needs to have a measure of spiritual maturity so that he can lead and guide the congregation. And then Poimino emphasizes his primary, the primary function of the pastor teacher, which is to feed the sheep. Now, I want to show you a couple of different places where these words are used, and we'll see how they're used somewhat interchangeably. For example, in Philippians 1.1, Paul addresses the the saints, the believers in Philippi, along with the bishops and deacons. So here you have two offices, bishops, uh, the episcopoi, the uh, bishops and the deacons. In 1 Timothy 3.2, he gives two lists of, of offices and qualifies them. Uh, first, the bishop or the episcopos, the bishop or the overseer. And following that, he talks about the deacons and the qualifications for a deacon. In Titus 1.7, he does the same thing. He calls them uh, these leaders a bishop, and he lists the qualifications for a bishop. What's interesting is the connection, uh, one other place the word is used is in 1 Peter 2.25 where it is linked to, it describes the Lord Jesus Christ and it's linked to being, to the to the noun for shepherd. Uh, he says, for you are like sheep going astray but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So it ties the shepherd aspect to the oversight aspect. These are connected. They're not two separate things. They're looking at one looks at the function, one looks at a responsibility for oversight. Now, the word elder is also used in 1 Timothy for the same group described that's described earlier in 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 by the word uh, episkopos, Later, we have the discussion of elders. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. First uh, Timothy 5:19, he says, "Do not receive an accusation against an elder." Uh, Titus 1:5. See, in Titus 1:7, gives the qualifications for the, the bishop, the episcopos But two verses before, Paul says, "Appoint elders." Now, here are the qualifications of the bishops. See, he uses the terms interchangeably. They're, they're synonymous. And the function of, of the uh, elder or the bishop is to, to pastor, to feed the sheep. Ephesians 4.11 is one of the only about four places where the noun pastor is used in the scriptures. Now, in because our tradition comes out of a more of a Baptist background and tradition. Historically, Dallas Theological Seminary and Bible churches were influenced by two streams of theology. One came from a Baptist strand, one came from a, a more Presbyterian strand. Lewis Barry Chafer uh, had been uh, originally ordained in Southern Presbytery uh, in a congregational uh, ministry. John Walford was ordained Presbyterian. In fact, a lot of the early um, uh, professors at Dallas were out of uh, a Presbyterian background, but a number of them, like Harry Ironside, came out of a Plymouth Brethren background. Uh, others came out of a Baptist background. So there was a a blend of different uh, ecclesiologies at, at Dallas Seminary. So that's our sort of our historical roots, as in that background. So we come out of a heritage that's been uh, more influenced by a Baptist view that the leader of the congregation is described as a pastor. Now, that noun is used in reference to the spiritual gift in Ephesians 4.11. Some are given as pastor teachers, and that's a hendiatus. That's how the the word teacher describes how the pastor functions. A, A pastor, some people say, oh, he's so pastoral, and he's referring to somebody who may be very friendly, very sociable, goes around and visits everybody, and, but that's not what the word means by pastoring. The word pastoring is, for, is a general word that is always defined by this secondary concept of teaching. How do you pastor? By teaching, not by... Um, and there's nothing wrong with being social. Different people have different gifts and different personalities, uh, but it is we have to stick with how the Scripture defines terms. So we see that uh, pastor is defined by, t- by teaching there, Uh, Hebrews 13, 20, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, that's a second example, and it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as a shepherd there, and in 1 Peter 2, 25, and so the word pastor as a reference to the leader of the church, we really don't find in scripture, usually it's the verb to shepherd or to pastor that we find in, in in scripture. Now, one of my favorite passages for describing the role of a pastor is Jesus interchanged with Peter uh, after the resurrection. Uh, Peter and the other disciples had gone up to Galilee, and they're gone back to fishing. Jesus appears on the shore. They can't really tell who it is. They've been fishing all night and haven't caught anything. That's how I fish. Uh, I can fish all night and all day, and I don't catch anything. A person in the next boat's hauling in all kinds, but I never get anything. And so the Lord told them to throw out their net on one side, and they hauled in more than they could handle. And then uh, shortly thereafter, Peter finally realizes who that is on the shore and jumps out of the boat and runs in, and they cook the fish for breakfast. And then the Lord says to him after breakfast, uh, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? In other words, more than these other guys. And Peter said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, there's a lot of... of, uh, of synonyms that are used in this passage, different words for love, different words for feeding, different words for lambs. I don't want to get, I don't have time to go into all the other details. I just want to emphasize the command. He says, well, he's basically saying to Peter, if you love me, you feed feed my lambs. Now, what did Jesus say about three chapters earlier in the upper room? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So this has to be understood in terms of that broader command that that pastor if you love jesus you feed my sheep that's what you do that's the primary directive for a pastor is to feed my sheep and here it's the verb uh poimino uh to shepherd to feed my sheep then in the next verse uh, they have a similar interchange Uh, jesus says to uh, simon do you love me and he says yes lord you know i love you and this time Jesus said, tend my sheep. It's a synonym, bosco, meaning to, again, to feed, feed the sheep. And then a third time, uh, they had this interchange about love, and Jesus says, feed my sheep, going back to Poimino. Pa, uh, so the point is, what's the role of the pastor? It's to feed the sheep. Again and again and again, we see that's the prime directive given to the elder bishop pastor is to feed the sheep, to give them the teaching of God's word. One last um, reference on this is 1 Peter five two, As Peter is addressing the elders, he tells them they are to shepherd or feed the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. There's that word bishop again. Uh, Episcopas, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, uh, but eagerly, so this gives us an understanding i 'm going to stop here and come back to I thought i 'd finish the chapter tonight, but uh, we 're not going to not going to quite get there uh, we 'll just stop here and come back and pick up the thrust of verse twenty eight next time. but this gives you a little bit of an idea because i haven 't taught much on uh, church organization or church offices. Uh, over the years a little bit of an understanding of these these different words and i don't really believe that it matters i mean in some sense maybe it does but what you call the pastor the pastor is the leader of the church when you take that metaphor of a pastor a shepherd with his sheep what does the shepherd do the shepherd leads them he is the one to whom God has given the vision for that congregation. That doesn't mean that he doesn't listen to anybody else. That doesn't mean that he doesn't uh, take advice and guidance from uh, uh, deacons and other mature uh, leaders in the, in the congregation. But the pastor is the leader. He's the one who who sets the agenda, the priorities uh, for the congregation, and he should lead not only in word but also in his life. Uh, no pastor's perfect. we all have sin natures. Those, some of, that's the interesting thing about this congregation. Some of you've been here uh, known me so long it It's just most pastors don't have that kind of a problem. Some of you know me too well because you've known me since since we were teenagers, so you know my sin nature to some degree and um, but but in many congregations, it's such a problem when they see the feet of clay of the pastor that oh, that pastor's got a sin nature, and it just it just shocks them. Well, every pastor has a sin nature and every pastor lives on his sin nature every now and then just like every other believer because we all fail at times. And, um, but the grace of God forgives us, forgives all of us, and, and the, just because a man's got the gift of pastor-teacher doesn't mean he's perfect, but it means that God has given him the gift to communicate the word and through the communication of the word to lead the congregation forward so that they can grow to spiritual maturity. Now, we'll come back next time and pick up with the warning uh because I think that's very significant, especially in light of things going on today. Right. Father, we th- Yeah. I think that's that's a good question, Bruce. I, that that here was a, here was Paul, who before he was saved, uh, Bruce is asking the question so we we'll get it on the recording. Before he was saved, he he was a murderer. Before he was saved, he he was out persecuting the church. So, in what sense can he say that he's innocent of the blood of all men? And I think that he, he's saying this. He said the same thing in Acts fourteen. Uh, where he talks about the fact that he's not guilty of the blood of, uh, of others. And he's not saying it, it with reference to what he had done before he was saved. That's forgiven by God, obviously, and uh, he's cleansed from that. But he's, he's using this to talk in the, in the sense that he has been, um, been honest and, and straightforward with the proclamation of the, uh, of the gospel so that he can't be held at fault by, by, by not giving the truth. Uh, fully and straight to people so they have the information they need to, to make a decision to trust in Christ or not. So he hasn't held back on the gospel. And that's what he says earlier. He hasn't, he hasn't shunned. He hasn't, uh, he hasn't uh, held back. Uh, he's been straightforward in giving, giving the gospel so that he, he can faithfully answer to God that he has done his, fulfilled his mission as an apostle to give everybody the, the truth how to have eternal life. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come together this evening. Pray that you'd encourage us and strengthen us with your your word because we know that's the only, only basis for hope. That's the only basis for strength. That you would guide and direct us in our thinking that we may desire above all things to glorify you in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.